Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Kevin Morris, and part of our continuing series in our study through the book, Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. If you enjoy the show, uh, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com. It is my patrons who make this show and others like it possible for your viewing and listening pleasure. You can head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. There you can choose a financial support tier, uh, which will help me out. And it will also uh, allow you to gain access to exclusive content, as well as being in the know of certain things that I am planning to release in the near future. So consider doing that. And thank you so much for all of your support. Well, we are now in session number three, but really our second session of a true study of this book, because last time we were together, we got into the meat, as it were, of theoretical practical theology, where we found uh, some very good insight concerning what it means to preach and what it means to listen to preaching. Uh, you'll recall, hopefully, uh, in the very beginning of this book, after you make your way through the preface and that brief uh, history of Peter Van Maastricht, um, that this book is introduced to us first by a section, about 30 pages, on what he calls the best method of preaching. And we began our time in this book by going through only a couple pages, because there's so much there. Um, but we heard some helpful things from Peter Van Maastricht about uh, the best method of preaching is based on what is the best care for the congregation that's being preached to, as well as uh, how a minister can ensure that he's being faithful to the text and has his eye towards what the goal is as he is preaching God's word. So we had a few initial observations. Uh, on the first couple pages, uh, we left off on page number six. And just before that, uh, Peter Van Maastricht introduced uh, what he calls the four parts of preaching, uh, at least in, in the sense of the four parts of preaching that he wants to speak to us about in great detail. He broke them up in this way, invention, arrangement, elaboration, and delivery. So those are kind of the four loose headings uh, that we're using when we think about these four parts of preaching. Now these four, which are introduced on page five, um, are not really dealt with in equal amounts because really he starts talking about the first aspect, invention, which we spoke on last time on page five. We left off on page six, where halfway through he talks about arrangement, and then as soon as we get over to page 7, he talks about elaboration. Elaboration, he, which is his third point, continues from page 7 all the way to page 29, and then finally he talks about delivery from page 29 through 31. So really we could say, of those four, invention, arrangement, elaboration, and delivery, Three of them get about a page each of treatment, and the other one, uh, elaboration, gets 
like almost uh, 22 pages. And so <laughs> things are not very equal in terms of how he splits it up. And so these uh, episodes, as we're working our way through the rest of his best method of preaching, are not necessarily going to be equal in terms of how I can chop them into uh, the length of, of a podcast. So I want to apologize with that ahead of time, because I'd like to break these episodes up a little bit different than what I'll have to. But anyways, uh, just a little bit of, of groundwork that I wanted to communicate to you before we get into it. Uh, by the way, if you are new, I've noticed that this uh, series has started to gain some traction on YouTube. And so if you are new to the podcast, if you have not spent time with us, uh, I introduced this book about a month ago or so um, as our systematic theology book that we're going to be working through. Obviously, we have started now, and you can gain, uh, hopefully, much help from these episodes, even if you don't own this book. But I would highly recommend that you grab yourself a copy of this Theoretical Practical Theology, Volume 1, and you can find that at Reformation Heritage Books. You can go to heritagebooks.org and grab a copy. It should be um, like $38 or something like that. Put it on your Christmas list. There's still time for somebody to buy it for you. Of course, you can find it on Amazon as well. Um, grab a copy because we're still at the very front end of this and we'll be spending uh, a number of months going through this book. And so uh, please do that. Please take as much advantage as you possibly can uh, to get the most out of this. All right, so let me direct our attention very quickly um, to the table of contents of this whole book. Those table of contents sections in books we typically don't use, we typically don't care about. But if you are somebody that reads the Puritans, if you read the Dutch Further Reformation guys like Peter Van Maastricht living in the 17th century, uh, then you know that whenever you come across guys like this, guys like John Owen, even, even Jonathan Edwards later on in the 18th century, um, you're going to see these guys write in a way that does not match kind of the blog friendly headings and subheadings that we're used to in the 21st century. In other words, there's a lot of points and a lot of subpoints that we have to work through, and sometimes you can kind of get disoriented of where we're at and what we're dealing with. And so, especially for the best method of preaching, because he's dealing with so many different things, um, it'd be helpful to know that as we uh, begin our time in this episode, uh, starting to talk about the arrangement, second point about the Second observation about sermons on page six um, that you see on the table of contents, we have the arrangement of a sermon and its laws, an inquiry into the introduction on page seven. And once you get there, he's really dealing with that third point from page seven all the way to 29. So you can see, if you look at this, uh, the way that he introduces uh, the idea of. Uh, elaboration of the sermon, his third point. He talks about elaboration in terms of the content of the text, the analysis and exposition of it, five parts of the doctrinal argument, uh, the informatory use, elenctic, consolatory, rebuking, exploratory, portatory. So you can see all these different aspects. Uh, if you lose track of where you're at, just go back to the table of contents. That's my advice to you because you can see him nice and neat on there. You understand what he's doing and how it fits into the big argument. Okay. 
hopefully that's enough groundwork for us to get started. We mentioned his first point about invention, uh, invention being the discovery either of the argument to, to be made or of a text suitable to the argument. We talked about the difference between preaching through books of the Bible expositionally or preaching on uh, biblical topics expositionally. And I said that both of those are certainly good. The point is that the argument of the sermon is the argument from the text. The point of the sermon is the point of the text, as, as Mark Dever uh, popularly says about expositional preaching. So now we moved to observation number two, which you'll find on page six. Here's what Peter Van Maastricht says about the arrangement, what he means. The arrangement is that by which the things invented or to be invented are reduced for the sake first of the intellect and then of the memory into an order analogous to the subject matter. And then he goes over some rules. Now remember, I talked about this last time, that that idea of memory, of memorization in the sermon comes up repeatedly by Peter Van Maastricht. And he doesn't mean here, again, that he's talking about the idea that you could sit down in front of a, a pastor who, who's giving the sermon on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, and that you're going to come away memorizing every, everything he said. He's not, you know, suggesting to us that, you know, before our technological innovations, uh, that we used to be able to be people that could memorize things. Maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe the fact that we've uh, dumbed down ourselves and are overstimulated uh, that our brains don't operate to the degree that they used to during the 1600s with guys like this. But uh, nevertheless, I don't think that what he's doing is arguing that we can memorize an entire sermon. Instead, what he means in terms of memory is that idea of meditating, meditating upon the text, meditating upon the big idea of the sermon, which we talked about last time. He's saying that the arrangement, the way that a sermon is brought uh, from the preacher to the people should be purposefully arranged in a way um, to not be a burden to the intellect, as for the sake first of the intellect, or a burden for memorization. Now, in some ways, I kind of wish that he would have uh, taken his own uh, medicine here in terms of how he organizes the best method of preaching, because his points in this are not necessarily what I would consider easy to uh, remember, easy to memorize. Uh, but he's saying, in terms of a sermon, um, you should have clear points. Uh, what I like about um, my pastor is he doesn't always do this, but in the bulletin where the sermon is given, uh, the sermon title, there's room for notes um, on one of the folds of the, of the church bulletin. Um, sermon text, sermon title. If he has uh, specific points to the sermon, he includes those, and he includes them uh, as they correspond to the text. So let's say you're preaching on John 1, uh, verses 1 through 8. He might have two points in that sermon. Now, some guys will just give you the points of their sermon, um, and there's no necessary uh, relationship between which actual verses in that passage correspond to which point. There's really just more of a 
a flow from beginning to end. Uh, whereas what I think is better, if you can organize your sermons this way, or you should encourage your pastor, uh, for those of you listening that aren't preaching, um, to organize points as they relate to the verses. So let's say uh, you're going to have um, your first of two points correspond to verses one through three. And your second point corresponds to verses four through eight. Now, that way, um, if you have one, uh, one point to be made, the people in the congregation can associate those with the text itself. Uh, how do you know what the first three verses of John chapter one say? Well, you know, because whatever that first point is, because it corresponds to one through three, it's almost like a summary statement of those three verses. And the same could be said about verses four through eight. That's kind of the idea to arrange the sermon in a way that is useful uh, to the memory of the hearers. Not so they can memorize everything that's there, but so they can memorize the big idea. Now, I said that sometimes my pastor does this, sometimes he doesn't. So if he doesn't have like clear points and subpoints, uh, maybe what he'll do is he'll give the big idea of the sermon, which is almost like a one sentence summary. Um, and, and that can be just as helpful if you don't have uh, points to to give on on your outline to share with people. Uh, last semester, for me, I uh, took a preaching class, and uh, one of the points that I thought was really helpful, uh, something to think about that I hadn't always done, but something that I have tried to do every time I preached since that class is uh, the idea by uh, Haddon Robinson, popularized by him and, and certainly used by many people, is when you have a main point in your sermon, to communicate that repeatedly throughout. So I might introduce the sermon with my main point or, or my big idea, as he says. Um, then I might say it later on once I get you know a third of the way through the sermon. I might say it again once I get uh, closer to the middle or closer to the end. And then I might close by reintroducing uh, it yet again. Um, that idea of repetition is meant to serve this idea of memory in the, in the minds of the congregation. Uh, you might not remember everything that I say from beginning to end, but hopefully as I've introduced it throughout the time of the sermon, you understand the big idea of the passage that we just interacted with. Now, I really like that because uh, as he introduces these rules of arrangement for us to follow. Um, he speaks of something that was certainly true of his day, but I find it to be true in our day just as much. Uh, and he says this, uh, the first rule is to ensure an absence of confusion, he says, in which there is not any order preserved. So, if you are a part of a church where the preaching is more like rambling, it's almost like I heard it described this way. If, if you have a pastor that's not following the rule of expositional preaching, regardless if they're preaching through books of the Bible from beginning to end or not, even if they want to be somebody like, like Spurgeon, who preached a, normally a different book of the Bible every single Sunday, um, if you have a pastor that it's not uh, being expositional even in the way, either in the way of Spurgeon or in the way of people committed to preaching through books of the Bible, um, you might have a pastor 
who deals with the sermon text, the way that we deal with the Pledge of Allegiance before a sports game, almost like a formality, uh, I say Pledge of Allegiance, National Anthem, wh- whatever you want to say, um, those formalities of citizens of the United States that we do, sometimes we you know, spend a good, a good amount of time uh, in reflection as we're doing it. Uh, sometimes we can be especially patriotic as we're doing it. Um, not even going to get into the conflict of people kneeling and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking in general here. The point of that is a formality. Um, whether you are patriotic, whether you love this country or not, the point of it is in general formality because it has no ongoing context in the content of the event itself. The Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem, has no immediate relation um, as the kick uh, as the kickoff begins and as the game goes on or as the um, basketball game goes or as the soccer game goes or whatever you want to say, the NASCAR race. It's only uh, an introduction to the event and it's forgotten. You don't spend time if you go to a sporting event you don't spend time during the whole rest of the game reflecting on the pledge of allegiance or the national anthem and understanding it in relation to the game and then going home and reflecting upon it again you don't you just focus on the entertainment event and sometimes preaching is like that sometimes preaching can be the sermon text introduced the same way that we would introduce the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem, and then everything from there is totally unrelated. Everything from there is rambling. Everything from there is just uh, the latest topic that the pastor wants to give his two cents on, and sometimes trying to poorly bring it back to the text, or sometimes just out of embarrassment, rereading the text a couple times during the sermon, but not really. Uh, seeing the subject matter of the text having anything to do with the uh, sermon text itself. Now, here's the problem. I'm not saying that if your pastor does that, he's not a Christian. I'm not saying if your pastor does that, he's a cult leader. But I am saying that, biblically speaking, that is not preaching. And biblically speaking, preaching is so important that we should not be okay with continuing to go somewhere where the main thing, the heart of Christian worship is neglected and becomes nothing more than a formality into the main event or even the entertainment event. That really segues to his second rule of this idea of arrangement. He says the second rule is an absence of a cryptic order in which at least some order is preserved, but at every point hidden in such a way that none is apparent to the people, with no other result than that the preacher becomes an orator whose business is to conceal his art. Now, this really does have uh, 
lasting negative impact in our day and age of preaching. On the one hand, uh, during Peter Van Maastricht's time, 1600s, and especially even further back, when we think about uh, the Greeks, when we think about the philosophers who are trained uh, orators, and you even hear uh, ideas where the uh, elaboration and pronunciation of a word uh, was worked on so much that guys would fill their, their mouth with, with rocks uh, to get better. It's almost like, like somebody going, uh, somebody trying to get better at running is going to you know, tie their, their legs down with, with the Velcro weights. It's almost like you want to get better at pronouncing a word, fill your mouth with rocks, and so you can really work on your jaw movement and uh, your, your, I, your concept of how well you can project a phrase, uh, if you can uh, talk without a lisp, right? All these, all these things to get better at, at speaking. On the one hand, there's that. It's kind of comical, but you understand the point. But also, in terms of being an orator, uh, your idea is to persuade and to captivate an audience. I.e., let's fast forward to the 21st century. Think of motivational speakers. Motivational speakers prize themselves on getting you to a certain action at the end or helping you work towards a certain conclusion uh, in response to what they have just said to you. Their goal is to emotionally move you now, there's a lot of, quote-unquote, preaching that really fits into that category more than any concept of preaching according to uh, Peter Van Maastricht's first point of invention, an argument to be made uh, in light of a text or a text suitable for the argument. Either way, your focus, your subject matter is the scripture passage. You don't say it like the Pledge of Allegiance and then move on to your uh, interests. You focus, you unpack the text to the people. If you're not following that rule, um, then you are liable of becoming an orator whose business is to conceal your art. Now, how does this play out? Obviously, I said motivational speakers um, many quote-unquote preachers look more like them than they do uh, the biblical concept of what preaching is because they wow people, they tickle ears, now thinking of false teachers here, um, and they get people to give them money. And the whole idea is to build the empire of what they are selling. And what they're selling is something less than um, what the text actually says. Now, again, I said there's uh, two two ways to understand this. Number one, it could be a pastor who is sincere, but he's in error. He has a faulty view of what preaching is, whether a lack of accountability of other pastors, whether lack of a vetting process, uh, because people just like the way he talks, so they said you should be a preacher, and he was in a denomination that had no doctrinal or educational standards. Lack of education altogether. Um, or just inexperience. Um, 
all of this would not equate somebody to a false teacher. It wouldn't equate somebody who is a, uh, as they say, a snake oil salesman. Um, but it does have to do with somebody who's an error, who is doing something less than biblical preaching. But then on the other end, um, you can have people who use preaching in a way uh, to deceive, in a way to build their own personal empire, to build their own popularity and influence and bank account and all of this. And you do see this again and again. Now, uh, where we draw the line of which one's a false teacher and which one is just somebody that's an error obviously gets us closer to the, the whole idea of the subject matter, yeah, which we'll get into that in his third point of the elaboration of the text itself. Uh, but for now, uh, let's just say that without trying to decide uh, which one a person falls into, sincere Christian in error of what their concept of preaching is, or false teacher, that it gets congealed, it gets convoluted, it gets caught up in the evangelical empire of uh, the American quote-unquote Christian culture. Because... Most of the time, when we have these celebrity pastors, we don't necessarily, and we do have them of, of guys who are sound, but I'm just speaking of the very much broad mainstream here. Uh, the guys that we elevate are not guys who are known for how well they unpack the text. They're well known for how tweetable their phrases are. They're well known for how viral their videos can be. They're well-known because of how animated they get on the stage. They're well-known because of their mannerisms throughout the preaching experience. They're well-known because they are as orators who conceal their art. Now, how do we know that? It's because you can identify these guys by the way they introduce this gotcha moment at the very end of the sermon. This wow factor at the very end, where this motivational application, so so-called application of the text, comes in a way that makes people give them a standing ovation, or makes them, you know, have these loud exclamations of what just occurred. You can find this all over the place on YouTube. You don't even have to go to places like uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network or uh, these other Christian. Uh, cable networks. Instead, you can just go onto YouTube. You can find this all over the place. Whether false teacher or somebody that's just popular doesn't necessarily spout heresy, but are not doing uh, what we would call biblical preaching. And so even if what they're saying isn't necessarily wrong, it is not tied to the text that they're evidently trying to tie it to, or maybe not even trying to tie it to, maybe just the one they read at the beginning. And so this really does come as a warning uh, to us, broadly speaking, of who we, uh, in this free society, by the way, of religious practice, um, who we allow ourselves to be placed under, who we voluntarily sit underneath week after week or watch week after week. It's a warning to us of what kind of environment of preaching we place ourselves in, because we're free 
to choose this church or that church. We're not living in a in a in an age where we don't have the luxury of choice. Now, this certainly isn't the case uh, worldwide, uh, but for my listening audience, and certainly for me, uh, this is the case that uh, we have the freedom to choose. Uh, what denomination, what church in that denomination, what state we want to live in, what kind of church environment we're, we're in on the, the day in and day out. And so these kind of things matter all the more when we have the luxury of choice. And as well, it's a warning for pastors, because if your goal is to wow people the way a motivational speaker does, or the way false teachers do, uh, we might want to look. Uh, very carefully at our hearts and what our goal is. And so, just really great points by Peter Van Maastricht. His third is an absence of inconsistency by which in individual sermons the preacher follows a different order so that it happens that the hearers, especially the less educated, cannot become familiar with his method and take away the contents of the sermon in their memory, without which, as Ames observed, all the fruit of the sermon perishes. Now, I, I love those what those descriptors that he gives to preaching. Remember uh, when he was talking about um, the idea of meditating upon the text and all of that before um, our last time together where he says, he talks about the soul of the sermon, he talks about the sermon dying without it, the usefulness of the sermon being brought to nothing. Here he talks about the fruit of the sermon can perish. And this is more so a warning in this, in this one uh, to pastors, not necessarily to hearers. Um, it could be used as a way to let the hearers encourage their pastor. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who was um, known for his three-point sermons. Um, and it turns out that when, when I grew up, uh, my pastor in the Southern Baptist Church always had three-point sermons. And this guy, he's, he's my age, um, was ordained not all that long ago, uh, was kind of scoffed at by somebody. I, I can't remember if it was somebody in his congregation. I think it was, but I don't remember for sure. Uh, but they made the point that um, he always does these three-point sermons. Or he always structures his sermons in the same way, almost saying that it was negative to be predictable. It was negative to follow this kind of, of formality. And my friend, you know, was kind of lamenting that and said, well, at least they know what they're going to get with me. And I can really, uh, I can really resonate with that. And I think Peter Van Master can too, because he says when a pastor comes, remember, the whole idea here is not about method in general. The whole idea here is about method for the sake of caring for the congregation, doing everything we can with all these uh, logistical decisions and all of these structural decisions, uh, not for the sake of popularity, not for the sake of being like that orator who conceals his art at the end but being the best help and service we can be for our people in the sermon itself, in the memory of the sermon after the fact, in the growth and practice of uh, their lives after the sermon has been preached, and all of this, the goal is for the care of the people. And Peter says, if you have a different 
way of preaching every single time. And maybe you do a three-point sermon uh, last week. This week, you're not doing any points at all. You're just almost uh, reading the text and then speaking broadly about it with almost no structure. And then um, you like to build almost in a, in a narrative form of um, giving the introduction and rising action, climax, falling action, a conclusion, or almost uh, introducing a cliffhanger that's not resolved all the way into the end. What he says here is that you become a burden to your people because as they're listening to you, they have no standard of which to know where you're going with this. They have no standard of which to understand as hearers, is it my responsibility uh, to think that he's giving us a cliffhanger uh, where he's actually not? Um, to think that he's doing a three-point sermon where it actually turns out there's no points, and so I, I have to do the the structural and arrangement work myself and my note-taking, uh, this becomes a burden to the people and can become a burden to the people so that, as he says here, all the, all the fruit, now think of, remember, the, the after effect, the goal, the end game of a sermon, all the fruit of the sermon perishes. I think that's a really important point, something we, I'm sure, we don't think about much. Um, and so I would like to say, if you have a pastor who preaches the same way week after week, count it a blessing and not a curse. In fact, uh, encourage your pastor and thank them uh, for their predictability. Now, I don't mean by this as if that their, their sermons are not spirit-led or um, that they're not preaching through the power of the Holy Spirit or that uh, they that dry necessarily means faithful, uh, because I'm not talking about dry preaching here. I'm talking about, structurally speaking, the way the sermon is arranged. If it is always the same way, that should be done for your benefit, because the structure of the sermon is not meant to end with the sermon itself. The structure is not the end. It is the means to the end, and that is things like memorization, things like meditating upon it afterward, things like, as he says here, the fruit of the sermon, the end game, the result that is meant to be brought forth by the power of the Holy Spirit in the sermon. And so, count it a blessing. If you're not having to do intellectual hoops, if you're not having to um, figure out what's happening you know, during the whole first half of the sermon, and then you miss out on it because um, of a lack of consistency. I think that's a really helpful point for us. And then lastly, his final point about the arrangement, uh, just to remind you, uh, we've been talking about Peter Van Maastricht's four points, four parts of preaching. Last week, we spoke about invention. Today, um, say last week, two weeks ago. Um, today, we're talking about arrangement, and then next time we'll get into elaboration, and then his fourth point, delivery. Um, so now we're in uh, the fourth um, rule of the rules of arrangement, okay? And we'll close the episode with this. He says, It will be helpful in this matter to make known to one's hearers formulas of connection 
transitions, unless consideration of a more advanced and polite audience, in order to prevent their disgust, suggests something different. Although also at this point, consideration for the less educated who are the greatest and majority in numbers must be observed, since the more erudite can accommodate themselves more easily to the capacity of the less educated than vice versa, the less educated to the capacity of the erudite. Now, this we might say applies more to um, my context uh, in uh, Presbyterian churches, Presbyterian churches, Reformed churches, um, are typically uh, stereotyped as those who are snobby, those who are intellectual, uh, sophisticated. Uh, we've considered all the ins and outs of the things that other denominations haven't even began to think of. And it can certainly carry, and I, I'm being facetious here, uh, that can certainly carry a great opportunity for pride. Not just in the preacher, but in the congregation. Pride that we are in a place that is different. We're the exception to all of the error that is uh, profoundly present everywhere else. Can have this idea of uh, self-sufficiency that the more complex, uh, the more fascinating, the more um, seminary level our sermons are, uh, whether we're the pastor, whether we're the members of the congregation, uh, the more right we are. And I would just like to point out um, what he says here again. You can just see it again and again and again that he's thinking of the care of the congregation. He says in general, and he's saying this during his time, in general your congregation is going to be made up of common everyday people. Uh, you're not really going to have a congregation filled with a PhD. You're not going to have a congregation uh, filled with third, fourth generation Presbyterian families that have all of the King James language of the Westminster catechisms memorized. Uh, you're going to be dealing with everyday people because that's what the world is for the most part, is everyday people. And so he says, make sure that you're preaching, make sure that the connections, the formulas, the transitions are used in a way that serves the majority. He says, because uh, the, the better educated people that are in the congregation can accommodate themselves to that, rather than preaching to the 10% intellectual elites and the 90% have to figure out a way to climb up here to meet with you. Um, my One of my heroes of the faith, the, the late R.C. Sproul, was a fascinating man because of how, um, how great his intellect was. Um, he was, in my opinion, uh, I didn't know him personally, but he seemed to be a very... Uh, down-to-earth, very humble guy. Uh, but if you spoke to anybody else, they would tell you of his intellectual brilliance. Um, the fact that he didn't even want to go on to postgraduate studies after he graduated from seminary, um, which is already a, a tough thing to do uh, because of the language learning and all of that you have to do, 
Greek, Hebrew, Latin, all of that. Um, he was encouraged by his uh, professor, Dr. John Gerstner, um, to go on to greater study. So Gerstner saw an intellectual um, uh, genius in him uh, that he would serve the church by greater uh, amount of study. And so R.C. Sproul said, okay, if I do that, I'm going to have to go to the best of the best. And um, Dr. Gerstner said, okay, if you want to do that, you need to go to Holland uh, to study with Dr. Burke Howard. And R.C., you know, the American native, says, no, no, I mean the greatest here in, in America. I'm not going to go to Holland. And he says, Dr. Gerstner says, no, 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 you'll be fine. You need to go to the best. So go to Holland and study under Dr. Burkhauer. And so R.C. Sproul takes his wife, uh, moves to Holland. Um, it's one thing to undertake uh, doctoral level study. It's another thing to move somewhere and have to learn their language during the summer before your studies begin because your professor is going to be lecturing in a foreign language that you that you have no uh, context for, and so they go there. He he has to study Dutch, and can still speak uh, Dutch throughout the rest of his life. I don't know if he could do it fluently, uh, but he's always you know mentioning Dutch terminology and stuff in his teaching series and and everything else. The reason I, I mention all of that is because R.C. Sproul was a man who certainly had an intellectual uh, ability that far surpassed the average person. But the reason that he was so well-known and so well-liked was because of his ability to communicate these deep truths, these truths that were tested through the fire of the, all the intellectual hoops that he had to jump through and all of the rigorous study and note-taking and everything that he did were communicated in a way the average person could listen, could follow. And this has not only to do with just the fact that he was, quote-unquote, a great communicator, but it has to do that he, he knew how to contextualize these big concepts to simple. Not watering them down, but giving them in a way that's palatable to the everyday common person. And I think that that should not be an anomaly, but it turns out, sadly, that it is. You either have pastors who clearly show themselves to be far less educated than they should be and are contradicting themselves in their sermons from what they said last week. Uh, they seem to have no, um, no oversight of what kind of theological truths um, that they're going by or not going by. And so you have a very, very raw form of Christianity that is not the kind of raw, simple form that we have in the Bible from the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John and Paul in, in, in their preaching that we have recorded in Scripture, but it's something that is, that is sub-that. It is something that is not just uh, notable for its simplicity, but it's something that is so simple um, that it's unhelpful. But in the other extreme, we have those who are so well-educated, these guys who are um, both seminary professors and pastors. Some guys can do this really well, but other guys, it's clear that their, um, their 
ethos is the academic audience. They're well-known because or they're, they're uh, well-educated and they are well-equipped for the academic audience, but they don't know how to contextualize to the pews. So you have, when they go to teach Sunday school, when they go to preach, it's clear that they're trying to take the graduate-level stuff and impose it upon a congregation to the point that it becomes burdensome and ultimately unhelpful. It's great to have a pastor who has a PhD. It's not great when your pastor's sermons are not even distillations of his doctoral uh, dissertation, but instead it's almost like his doctrinal dissertation has been printed into manuscript form and just recited in a way that he's referring to guys that you don't even know how to pronounce their last name, and he's speaking in a way that is so lofty and so high up that it's out of touch with the rest of the people. The 90% of the people, uh, mind you, as, as Peter Van Maastricht says, they're greater and greater in, in number than uh, the, the well, as he says, erudite. And so these points are really important. I, I hope that you can really see as we're working through this best method of preaching that there's a lot of relevancy for the majority. And I don't just mean majority in terms of education, but I mean majority in terms of the fact that most of you, with the exception of, of a handful of people that are listening to this, are not preachers, but you are members of congregations. You are people who are preached to week after week, and it really gives you some great calls to action of how you approach the whole concept of showing up to church and listening to a sermon. How you can be an encouragement to your pastor. How you can show honor to whom honor is due if you have a pastor that seems to be, whether they don't even know of Peter Van Maastricht or they do, um, that they seem to be uh, following uh, this mindset of, of preaching. But it also, hopefully, is a call to action uh, by way of warning of what you subject yourself to. And if you find that um, you're so out of step, uh, in the kind of Christian context that you're in, uh, maybe just time for an encouraging conversation with your pastor. Um, if you've stumbled into these things, you've never thought about them before, it could be very likely that your pastor hasn't either. So it'd be a great opportunity for some uh, collaborative efforts of thinking about preaching in your congregation. Again, I don't want to assume here that your pastor is not following this, that he's a false teacher or anything like that. Um, but again, it, it should cause us a great deal of caution. Church is not an afterthought. Preaching is not a, a novelty, a, not a historical relic. It is what God has prescribed to care for and nourish his people and is meant to have a strict qualification in terms of who should be doing it and what kind of doctrinal standards they're following. And great warnings for those who are not following those standards and those who have uh, never been qualified biblically speaking, but yet have assumed the role themselves. So this really should be a great deal of encouragement and warning to us, and I hope that uh, the Lord will help you uh, to sift through all of this that we've talked about, maybe see uh, what should apply to, to you specifically in your own context. All right, so we've dealt with a lot of good ideas here, and we've only worked our way through one page uh, today. 
Uh, but that was his second point, the arrangement of the sermon. So next time, uh, we will talk about his elaboration, and that will really be the bulk of our time in the best method of preaching, because in point number three, elaboration, uh, we're going to be touching on the highlights from page seven all the way to 29. So we covered one page today. We'll try to cover over 20 next time, and then we'll close out the best method of preaching by talking about uh, his final point, and that is the point on delivery. All right, so please get the book if you don't have it, Theoretical Practical Theology, Volume 1, Prolegomena, by Peter Van Maastricht. Head to heritagebooks.org, and you can grab a copy. Hope this has been an exciting and encouraging time for you. I know it has for me, and I'm looking forward to our next time together. So I'll see you on another episode real soon.